Let's pray together. Our gracious God, you have uh, called us into this place, welcomed us in here, Lord, as we sing and as we worship and we hear your words read to us. God, we, uh, we open up your word, the Bible, Lord, and, and we've learned through your faithfulness that we can depend on you speaking to us every time we open up your word. The Holy Spirit, help us this morning to not take that faithfulness for granted, Lord, but, but give us a, a, a humble heart so that as we enter into your presence and as we anticipate that you'll speak to our hearts again here this morning, God, breathe fresh insight, fresh words into our hearts, into our minds. It's in your name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, well, uh, well, welcome again to Encounter. Uh, if this is your first time, and I know there's a bunch of us, uh, first time here at Encounter Church, um, just a uh, special welcome uh, to you all. My name is uh, Dirk. Um, one of the pastors here at Encounter, primarily responsible for uh, the, the teaching or the preaching that happens, the messages here on the weekends. Um, but we're glad that you're here. If you were here last week, you might know that we're starting off a new series here at Encounter called Red Letter Prayers. In a lot of Bibles, the words of Jesus are printed in red letters. So we say, hey, if, if we want to learn how to, how to pray, if we want to learn how to approach God, maybe with the, with the heart of God, we're going to probably be wise to read the words of Jesus, the, the red letter prayers, the prayers that Jesus spoke. Um, and so last week, we, we took a look and we kind of asked this um, uh, not-so-rhetorical question of, why is it sometimes when I pray, why is it sometimes that I feel like I'm doing it wrong? And the short answer is, Maybe you are. <laughs> maybe you are doing it wrong because there is a right way to pray. There's a, there's a wrong way to pray. And so maybe those feelings are totally justified. For example, Jesus uh, started off and said in the red letters in the prayer before uh, the Lord's Prayer, he said, hey, in a way, if you're praying to God like there's this business relationship marked by performance, marked by I'll do this and you'll do this for me. And as long as I keep my end and you keep your end, we're good. It's a wrong way to pray. When Jesus started off praying the Lord's Prayer, he said, Our Father, which totally changed the context of the relationship, right? It's not a boss. It's not an employee. It's not a you hold up your end of the bargain and I'll do mine. It's not a performance-based. It's a commitment-based. It's a father-son. And we say, nothing can change that. So it's less about bending God's will to match yours than like faith him into doing something. And it's more about bending our wills to meet God's. Uh, not about my kingdom, not about my will. It's about your will. It's about your kingdom. This week, it's less about uh, doing prayer wrong. And this week, it's about, okay, when I pray, why is it when I pray, sometimes it feels like God doesn't listen. God isn't answering my prayer. Any of them. Okay, uh, to be completely honest, we might say I've asked probably for a few superficial things that maybe aren't so much about bending my will to match God's. Maybe some of the things that I've prayed for, God wasn't totally on board with. When I you know, open up and when I pray, I want to win the lottery even though I never buy a ticket and that just doesn't ever <laughs> seem to happen. But, but no, like I've offered some, some better prayers too. I've prayed, I've prayed about some things that I think God really does care about. I've heard of a story in Central America, this village that has been in a severe drought. And it was a month ago. And I've been praying about that and bringing that before God. And I know God cares about those people. I know that those are his children, that he wants to, he wants to take care of them. And, and it breaks his heart to see the suffering. But, but I didn't hear anything. So I followed up and God didn't hear the prayers and the people are still in a drought. 
Even more than that, even when I've prayed about, God, please show me your perspective. God, help me to get away from my own will and help me to find yours. Help me, help me to, to, so my heart breaks for the things that break your heart. Help me to love the people that you love, which is everybody. But he doesn't hear me. He doesn't listen. Why doesn't God listen to all of our prayers? Or we could rephrase it and ask it this way, even more pointed. How can I pray so that I am guaranteed that God will listen to me? I mean, is there something that I can say that I know God will hear me, God will listen when I, mean, when I say it and when I mean it? If you've asked that question before, if you desire to, or even if you're just like hearing that and saying, wait a second, there's something that I can say that I know God will hear? I think Jesus anticipates the question, and he, he answers it in a way, but he's going to answer it in the form of a parable, which is a, a story, sometimes made up, sometimes way exaggerated, a story that Jesus tells to emphasize a particular point. And we're going to go to that story, and we're going to kind of answer this question, is there something that I can say, is there something that I can pray, pray to make sure that God hears me? And we're going to go to a story. And friends, if uh, some of you, if you've grown up in the church, you may have heard this story a hundred times in the past. Those of you who have not grown up in the church, those of you who like all of the stories that we talk about here in the, on Sunday morning are new to you, you are probably best positioned to understand what this story is about than, than probably anybody else in the room, um, myself included. So I invite you to turn in your flow sheet. Also on the uh, screen, uh, it's going to be the words behind me. And we're going to go through the entire thing. So just kind of hang with the parable because we're going to read through it. I think how Jesus meant for us to hear it as a complete story. This is Luke 18, starting off in verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. I just love when he says, to some who are confident and look down on everybody. Like nobody here, but you know, some. Uh, Two, uh, thanks for laughing. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And he has a list. He's robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus wraps it up. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, not the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Two people, Pharisee and a tax collector. Uh, Those of you who have grown up in church, those of you who have heard this story hundreds of times in the past, you kind of get the whole trajectory of where this is going, right? You get it. They get the, the Pharisee, the do-gooder. The, the Pharisee is a religious, he's a spiritual leader, but you know, he's also part of the Jewish people. It's God's chosen people, carved out of the human species. For whatever reason, God just picked them and developed them and wouldn't let them go. He said, you're mine, I'm your God. We're in this together. The Pharisee knows he lives and breathes in the center of God's will. The Pharisee knows who he is before God. He knows he's, a, he's like a favorite kid or a star player. 
And so when he knows, he prays with this expectation that of course, of course God is going to listen to me. And the slimy tax collector, of, of course, I mean, of course God isn't going to listen. And then Jesus being the rabbi comes in and says, hey, you know what? When you pray, don't be like him, be like him. Those of you who have heard this story a hundred times before, there we go. We've got be like, don't be like the Pharisee, be like the tax collector. I will see everybody at Tim Hortons for lunch across the street. I get a sense like there's more to it than that. I mean, we've been, some of you maybe have been around here. We kind of have a high esteem for Jesus. Some of his words that he shares, it's like there's these layers. And as long as we live with them and let them find a place in our minds, it's like there's more and more and more layers and depth and meaning that, that pull off. And we seem to never even get to the core of it, but we always find these new insights about Jesus all the time. And as a, in addition to all that, he seems to be really clever. Like he seems to be able to like ask these questions that, that cut right to the heart. He seems to be able to expose somebody instantly for who they are in the most clever and creative kind of ways. So when he tells this story, I just I, I want us to I want us to be skeptic of the oh, easy be like this guy, not like this guy. Everybody go go home. I want us to maybe be skeptic about that for, for just a few minutes here this morning and we think maybe there's something here that Jesus wants us to see that we've missed. Maybe because you've heard the story a hundred times in the past, there's meaning and ideas that have attached onto the story that Jesus never intended for them to be there. Uh, one author who's commentating on this passage, where I got to just tell you a lot of this material comes from, Ken Bailey, who wrote a book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. In the introductory on this, I just love the line that he says. He goes, a parable like this is, is crying out to be rescued from the barnacles of ideas that we attach to it over the centuries. It just wants to be washed free of all these preconceived ideas that we have about what it means. And if you're here, and if you haven't grown up in the church, and you're reading it through the first time, you are well positioned. The advantage is yours for, for getting it this morning. One of those barnacles that attaches is this idea that be like the, uh, don't be like the Pharisee, be like the tax collector. See what happens. I know you're guilty of it because I'm guilty of it too, so it's got to be a number to some of you, right? You know what happens is as soon as I say that, don't be like, be like, we walk away from the parable going, man, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee who's glad he's not like that tax collector, right? I mean, without really thinking about it, we're like, yeah, I, to I totally get it. God, thank you so much I'm not like that Pharisee over there who's not, who's, you know, not like that tax collector. And immediately, Jesus, because he's, he's clever, right? He's smart and, and he's worthy of respect, as a, as a rabbi and as a teacher, he has this way of like writing us in the second person kind of like in the story. And he says, it's not just a Pharisee and a tax collector. He's like, it's you, Dirk. You're like the Pharisee. And, and I have this way of, of like trying to push away. And the more I struggle and the more I like want to get away from the, the spot of the Pharisee, the more I'm tied into the position of the Pharisee that he writes. So now you and I are in the story as the Pharisee and it doesn't turn out well for us. 
So hopefully there's something else uh, here for us. I look at who these guys were. Uh, Pharisee, right? Clean living guy. I mean, if you can get over some of that, uh, you know, thank you God for not making me like that. After that, I mean, just listen to the, listen to the you know, spiritual resume that a guy like this has. First of all, he is a Pharisee. Uh, he is a teacher. He is a spiritual religious uh, leader of the group. He is a part of God's chosen people. Um, some of the items that he lists here are, uh, I'm not a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer. These words are probably ripped right from uh, the, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, part of the law. Because Jesus is telling the story, it's a parable, remember, and Jesus is, is telling it. You get the sense that when he talks about the law, Jesus understands he appreciates the full depth and richness of the law. So in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about adultery, he's talking about a lot more than just adultery. When Jesus says, you know what, you've heard don't commit adultery, I tell you, don't even look at a woman lustfully. He goes, because that's like adultery in your heart. This is what it means. He says adultery, we're talking about everything beneath the surface of that iceberg. We're talking about murder, don't murder. I tell you, you know what, don't avoid, flee from even the roots of murder. If you're angry, if you get rageful, if you kill somebody in your heart, it's breaking the commandment. Stay away from it. And the inverse of these is also true. Uh, Don't murder, preserve life. Love your neighbor. Love even the people that you get angry at and want to murder in your heart. Be faithful to your spouse instead of lusting, instead of adultery. So the, the portrait that we have of the Pharisee, and I don't even think we should call him a Pharisee because the words are so loaded for us, so let's just call him Phil and Tom the tax collector. <laughs> We're creative like that around here. You can tell with the flooring. Um, <laughs> Phil is a stand-up guy. I mean, he's faithful to his wife. He's probably, uh, presumably, a, a, a loving dad as well. Phil is the kind of guy also that cares so much about keeping the law that he says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Loaded words for Phil in the first century, particularly for a rabbi. Uh, People in the rabbis or uh, Pharisees in the first century had an idea about the law in the Old Testament. So not just the Ten Commandments, but all of it and all of the little laws, hundreds of them. They had an idea and the image that they used was that it was like a flower garden. And to, to break a law what was like trespassing through the flower garden, right? So some people say, like, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our trespasses. God, forgive us for the times that we walk through and crush the flowers in your garden, the law. And forgive us also for the times that we walk into somebody else's garden and crush those flowers. And so the uh, Pharisees had this idea. They say, okay, in order to protect the flower garden, in order to make sure that we don't even, even accidentally cut through the corner of a flower garden, the law, to break it, to trespass. We're going to put a fence around it to guard ourselves. So the fence looks like you're supposed to fast three times a year on the holiest days of the year. That's what the flower garden said, what the law said. The fence around that said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to up the ante on this, build a fence around that to make sure we don't even slip up and make a mistake. We're going to fast for the two days leading up to every fast day and the two days after the fast day. So we're not just going to fast three times a year. We're going to fast 12 times a year. Phil says, I fast twice a a week, 104 times a year, I'm fasting. 
Phil says, I care so much, so deeply about my wife, about my kids, about my friends, and about my God that I have built a fence around the fence around the flower garden of the law. In the flower garden, in the law, it says to tenth or to, to tithe, where, I, where we get our word tithe from. It's literally tenthing. But in the Old Testament, in the law, it says this is what you should, you should tenth on, what you should tithe on, the commodities of the day, wine, oil, and bread. Wine, oil, and bread were typically what was uh, traded, the, the goods that were exchanged for, uh, for other goods and services. The Old Testament law says tenth on those things. Give a tenth of them over to God. The religious people, the Pharisees, said, well, we want to make sure that we don't even inadvertently miss something. So uh, wine comes from grapes, oil comes from uh, olives, and, uh, and, and bread comes from grain or, or wheat. So they said, listen, in order to fence around this flower garden, we're going to tenth, we're going to tithe on every possible thing that comes up through the ground. I don't care if it's tomatoes or uh, jalapeno peppers. It probably wasn't. Whatever comes up through the ground, we're going to give a tenth over to God because we're going to fence this. We want to make sure not to step on the flower garden of God's law. Phil, because he's such a good guy and he cares so deeply, says, I'm going to tenth on everything that I get, not just the stuff that grows up from the ground. I'm going to tenth. If somebody gives me a ride, every tenth time somebody gives me a ride, I'm going to give somebody else a ride. If somebody gives me a pair of shoes, for every ten pairs of shoes that they give me, I'm going to give one of my shoes away. Everything that I get, I'm going to tenth on. I'm building a fence around the fence of the flower garden that is God's law because I care so very much. He's a good guy, friends. I want us to see about Phil that he's the kind of guy that when we hang out with, we feel better about ourselves for spending time with him. Phil is the kind of guy that when he's in a small group, you want him to be the leader of the small group because he's just so caring and he pulls people's kind of conversations in and he doesn't dominate and he lets people tell their stories and he's, he's just so good. That's Phil. He's a good guy, a faithful husband, loving dad, devoted to his Lord. Tom, on the other hand... <laughs> His occupation is tax collector, which means when Rome comes in and they take over a region, they say, you know, keep on going, do what you're doing. We don't want to interrupt that. Just pay us. This machine has to be paid for. Uh, here's the price. And uh, if, someone, if somebody want to take care of matching that bill, bid on the job. If you win the bid, you pay us that amount, what we want, and we'll make sure that you have our army at your disposal. Tom is the guy who won the bid. Or he's the guy who works for the guy who won the bid. Tom is the guy who looked around at all of his friends and he said, how much do you think I can shake these people down for? And then he pays money to Rome and everything extra that he collects, he gets to keep for himself. Tax collectors are notorious for living just shameless, immoral lifestyles. I mean, the booze, the women, the drug, the, like everything around them just screams, I don't care about faith, 
family, God, I've given up. I'm living for myself. This is Tom. Jesus says, when these two guys pray, you know which one goes home justified? (laughs) By the way, justified. Not even about prayer. I thought the passage was about prayer, which is why I included it in red letter prayers. (laughs) It's not about prayer. Because by the end of the story, Jesus gets to it and he says, we don't talk about who God listened to or who God obeyed or followed through on or who God has his will changed to or bent this way. No, no, no. The one who went home justified, the one who went home forgiven, the one who went home clean. As bizarre as it sounds, it's Tom, the grimy tax collector, not Phil. Okay. What sense does that make? And on one hand, you know, you're like, okay, I get it. You know, I've heard this before. I'm on board. But hang on a second. Think about this for for just a minute because I think we're all guilty of the same thing. When he prays, either one of them, when Phil prays, don't you kind of think that God listens to Phil like a little bit more than Tom? I mean, isn't it true in your weeks, at least sometimes, that when you're coming out of a Tom week, right? I mean, Monday at work, you had to lie about something, cover it up, but hey, you're trying to protect feelings and it wasn't really necessary that they knew anyway. So you, and then like Tuesday, other people found out about it and Wednesday, it just blew up. And by Friday, you're like, oh my goodness, I have to keep an Excel spreadsheet about who I told what to with like multiple pages in this thing and flowcharts just to keep track of the lie. It's that out of hand. And then on Saturday or Sunday, we come to church and we start praying, God in heaven, And immediately you're like, who am I kidding? This prayer is not clearing the eight-foot ceiling. No way it's getting to God in heaven, right? Isn't it true? Like, in a way, we feel like when we're coming out of a Tom week, there's no way that God is going to listen to us. On the other hand, when we've come out of a Phil week, and it's like we've been faithful and we've done well, we've done good things all throughout the week, faithful husband, loving dad, you know, the good student, the whole works. Even in addition to that, we went to church, awesome. After church, we went to like a Christian worship concert that we paid to go to, you know what I'm talking about? They even got us like five bucks on parking, which was a little surprising, but it's like a sanctified lot, so it's cool. (laughs) Picked up a Compassion International child while we were there. When you sit down and you pray... I think God's going to hear this one. Because in a way, it's like there's a, there's a scorecard that we keep track. There are a couple golfers out there. You know, it's almost like we kind of keep track throughout the week and the scorecard goes, okay, this is lied about the thing. That really spiraled out of control. So that's, that's like a two-stroke penalty. <laughs> but you know, I got, I got one of like the Christian concert, the Compassion Kid. That's a birdie at least. And so we like keep track. And when we go to God, the the feeling that we bring in is like he's either going to hear me or not. He's either going to listen or not based on, I don't know, whether I hit par or not on my score sheet. Does God have to honor that? I mean, is that in any way part of the biblical story? 
Again, inviting skepticism into your minds. Is it, is it possible that that score sheet isn't God's, that the score sheet is your score sheet, and there's no way that God is bound or asked to honor that in any way whatsoever? What's the story really about? The text says that they went up to the temple to pray. In every Semitic language, this one that Jesus was speaking in, Aramaic included, when you go somewhere to pray, it's a euphemism for going somewhere for public worship. When he goes up to pray for public worship, there's a part of the worship service, whatever it was, in which there was a personal or individual part of the prayer uh, as, as part of the service. We know because we have what each of them say individually to the Lord. It was often that people spoke out loud during prayers. Silent prayers weren't around until maybe a couple hundred years later. The Phil takes full advantage of this thing and like rattles off the sermon to everybody. The only public worship service that a tax collector and a, and a Pharisee would both go to at the same time that also involved uh, personal, private, individual prayer as part of the service was the atonement service. Uh, Not the big one once a year, but the daily ones that happened actually twice a day, at dawn and at 3 p.m. Part of the service meant that they would both go up, like lots of people would, and they'd stand in the courtyard of the temple, so like outside. Remember, the temple was rather small, not many people went in. But they stood in the courtyard outside, and a priest came out in the the full garb. And they would take a lamb, blemish-free, he's spotless, he's perfect, and they kind of paraded it around a little bit. And they put the lamb on the, it was called the Great High Altar, and they'd kill it. And they'd take the blood of the lamb and they'd walk around the priesthood or the great high altar and he'd throw the blood, he'd sprinkle it against the side of the great high altar just so that every one of us could see what, what the, the payment of sin is. At that moment, there would be uh, psalms read, psalms of atonement, psalms of forgiveness, psalms of, of cleansing and a plea to, to make me, make us clean, to remove our sins. And there'd be a blast of silver trumpets. There'd be a clang of cymbals. And the priest would go inside and he, and he would take the, the sacrifice to the Lord in the temple. And he would say, God, here's the sacrifice. Are you going to do it? Are you going to forgive your people again? Are you going to wash away their sins one more time today? And this would happen twice a day every day of the year. Outside, when the priest went in, outside the people were expected, were invited to pray their individual prayers before God. Prayer in the first century Jew meant three things. Prayer meant um, uh, please as an intercessor on yourself or someone else's behalf, sorry, confession for sin, and, and thank you for the goods, for the provision that, that you have offered. Phil is outside and he's praying while the priest is saying, God, are you going to be faithful one more time to your people before coming on outside again and giving the word, yes, God was faithful. He forgives us. Thank you, Lord. More symbols, more trumpets. Phil is outside during that like anxious waiting time and he's saying, not please, thank you, or sorry. He's saying, God, I'm glad I'm not like these people. And by the way, it says that he's standing alone which is kind of an interesting thing for Jesus to include in his parable because he says that the Tom, the tax collector, was also standing apart 
But it's like different language. Everything indicates that Phil is standing alone because everybody else at this temple could be unclean. And Phil knows he's clean because he's such a darn good guy. He doesn't want to get unclean. He doesn't want to touch. He doesn't want to be defiled by anybody else. So he's standing apart from everybody else. Tom, on the other hand, is standing alone because everybody knows Tom is grimy. Everybody knows Tom is unclean. Everybody knows. And they they move away from him. Phil moves away from them. And while the priest is inside asking God to be faithful one more time for a few more hours to his people until they recycle and do this thing over, Phil is outside praying. And he said, I am so much better. I think that Phil has learned to assume God's faithfulness. I think Phil comes here a lot. I think he's probably here two days or two times a day at dawn and at three. And every time he comes here, he sees the same thing played out. And every time he comes, he knows the priest is going to come out 10 minutes later and say, he was faithful, God was faithful. He took away our sins one more time for a few more hours. He assumes that God is going to forgive him, that God is going to justify him because who he is, because he's, he's objectively better than the rest of us. Tom doesn't assume. When the priest disappears in that temple, Tom is outside and it says that he beats his breast. Nobody beat their breast. Women occasionally beat their breast at a particularly tragic funeral when somebody dies young. The only reference in the Bible about, about a man beating his breast was when Jesus died on the cross and it was an earthquake and there was thunder and it was just this big deal and it went dark. And it says everybody beat their breast. So, so probably men beat their breast. But this time is the only time it says specifically a man beat his breast out of, out of distress over what was happening, which is probably foretelling what was coming up. And he prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He is, he is not assuming that the priest is going to bring out good news. In addition, the word that he uses for mercy, Luke is really familiar with these words, this word. It's almost a cliche in his gospel and his story. In fact, the next story, he was a blind man. Lord, have mercy on me. And, and God has, Jesus has pity on him and, and, and heals him. Mercy, pity, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be nice to you even though you, you don't deserve it. Oh, mercy. Except for the only time that somebody uses this word, he doesn't use the, the mercy word aleo. He uses the word helaskalon. Lord, have mercy on me. Helaskalon means, Lord, atone for me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, cleanse me one more time. Grimy Tom has this sense. Like when the priest offers the the lamb, blameless, spotless as it was, and goes back to bring it before God, Tom knows a lamb isn't good enough. A spotless lamb is not good enough. Coming to the temple at at dawn and at 3 p.m. for the atonement service, it's, it's not good enough. Church is not good enough. Being a really, really good person, even leading a small group, is not good enough. Tom gets that. Going to the Christian worship concert, it's, it's not good enough. 
buying the, the, like the pair of shoes where you buy one and they give a, a kid shoes to like the kid, shoeless kids in, in Africa, it's not good enough. Tipping well is not good enough. Riding your bike to work because you're earth-friendly, it's all still not good enough. Recycling is, is not good enough. All of this, Tom gets it. It's not enough. And so he beats his breast. He cries out in despair because he knows. He's not supposed to know. There's no reason for him to know. But he gets all of this whole system. It isn't enough. It just points to who is enough. And so when John says in his gospel, when John the Baptist looks out over the hill and he says, there, Jesus Christ, that's the one. Behold, look, the Son of God, the Lamb, perfect Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's good enough. Tom gets that. It's a kind of upside down, bizarre way. Phil doesn't. And so when one of them goes home, it's the one who points and says, none of this is good enough, but it all, it all points vaguely to the one who is good enough. I started out, and I said, if you want a way to know that God hears you, if, if you want to pray in a way that you know God will listen, this week when you pray, wrap it up with, in Jesus' name, amen. We say, in Jesus' name, amen. Because sitting in Tom's grimy, kind of dirty position, In Jesus' name, amen. God, let it be so. Not on my own credibility. Not not on my own scorecard like Phil. On the credibility of Jesus Christ. You listen to me. Because I am grafted and rooted in him. Let's pray that. I invite you to stand up where you are. Let's pray to the Father. In the name of the Son. Our gracious God in heaven. Uh, God, the one who is at the same time far in heaven away from us. The one who Moses is afraid to enter in the presence of because of, of your sheer holiness. But the one who is also so near that he invites us to call you dad. God, we pray for your forgiveness. We pray for your strength. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to be in us and live through us this week. Not on our own credibility, but in Jesus' name, amen.